Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have a very special interview episode with Alan Taylor. Born and raised in Maine, Alan Taylor teaches American and Canadian history at the University of Virginia. His books include The Divided Ground, Writing Early American History, American Colonies, Williams Cooperstown, American Revolutions, as well as the one that I'm working on right now, Internal Enemy, Slavery and War in Virginia from 1772 to 1832. Alan Taylor has won a Bancroft Prize as well as a Pulitzer Prize, and his writing is always so clear and so helpful and, frankly, indispensable for me in teaching early American history. Uh, Alan, it was wonderful to talk to. This was such a great conversation, and I learned so much. Please enjoy my conversation with Alan Taylor. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I, I have loved your work so much. I, I have all, let's see, I've got American Colonies, American Revolutions, and then uh, I'm working on your book about 1812 right now. It's, it's been fun to go through these. And I, um, you know, I, as someone that's historically trained, but not necessarily in American history, you know, it's been kind of fun to go through and like, think about uh, how I approach these subjects with my students as a K-12 educator. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, I have a lot of questions for you today. Kind of in our podcast where we're at is we're in between kind of the Spanish and Mexican periods and talking about mm-hmm. uh, kind of this kind of uh, inflection point in California's history and the fact that within a hundred years, um, they went through kind of three uh, political uh, control groups um, and how how complicated that is for uh, the, the history of the state of California. So I want to first talk about native groups. Um, and one of the things that I uh, have learned about and a lot of people know is that uh, native, native groups in California were, were not, maybe not isolated, but there was uh, not, a, not a lot of political unification amongst native mm-hmm. groups in California, unlike in other places uh, in North America. Um, and so my question is, did the lack of political unification of these native groups, did that help or hurt them when Europeans arrived? Well, I would say that there's a lack of political unification among native peoples throughout the continent, but you're, you're, you're quite right that it is um, especially so in California. Uh, there are ways in which the landscape of California and the many different micro environments encouraged native peoples to specialize and they ended up developing quite distinct languages and uh, distinct identities because of these many small environments that they've adapted to. So what was highly adaptive for a very long period of time becomes, in my view, a liability for them when they are facing um, newcomers who have much greater unity. Now, there are conflicts among, um, among the intruders, but they have a very strong sense of themselves as being Hispanic uh, and uh, that they all have that in common and makes them all different from all Native peoples who they tended to lump together. Uh, and so it, it, became, it was difficult to impossible for different Native groups in California to unite uh, against the Spanish. Um, much more difficult than, say, in New Mexico, uh, where it was um, it was difficult. But when we get to the Pueblo Revolt of the later 17th century, uh, people are able to work across linguistic and cultural bounds in order to rise up against the Spanish and, and drive them out of the 
out of the colony for uh, nearly two decades. Yeah, I mean, it seems like when you contrast it with what was going on kind of in the Great Plains, um, it seems like two different two different worlds in terms of how the natives, uh, you know, were organized. And I, you know, it, it just makes me wonder, you know, how, if, if that was part of the reason why the mission system was able to have more control, um, which kind of leads me to want to talk about uh, Franciscan priests um, and the mission system. Uh, so, I mean, if you read anything about Junipero Serra or any of the people working in Alta California, there was always this kind of uh, tension between the presidios um, and the priests. And oftentimes, you know, all, all the groups were villainized, understandably, within this kind of the Spanish mission uh, of, you know, ultimately colonizing and conquering Alta California. Uh, but do you see the priests as kind of uh, shielding in some way uh, more violence that would be, have come if the military was running things in California or had more kind of universal control over policy? Well, it's kind of you know, pick your poison. And this kind of tension between the, the so-called secular colonists, uh, the, the missionaries, and the soldiers in the Presidio, this happens throughout the Spanish Empire. And the, in these situations, you, on one hand, you could say soldiers left to their own devices would just be brutal and, and, and enforce their will. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the missionaries, while they, they would like to preserve the lives of the native peoples, uh, they want to do so by preserving them as people working for the mission and following the dictates of the missionaries. So non-mission Spaniards would say it's just a system of exploitation and the missionaries are just trying to claim the labor of the Indians for themselves and are denying this labor to the, to the non-religious colonists. So the, the, the missionaries are offering a, a protection of sorts, but it's a protection where they are monopolizing the benefit of their labor and are insisting on, on sweeping cultural changes on the part of, of Native peoples. Uh, and, and kind of obliging Native peoples to settle down and not rotate through their traditional territories uh, with the seasons is demoralizing, and it also increases their exposure to disease. So while fewer Native peoples will, will die of direct violence, many more Native peoples will die of exposure to disease as a result of the mission strategy. And it seems like the Franciscan priests also created kind of an ideology um, that kind of reinforced the oppression that was gone. Can you speak a little bit about uh, how the role of race played into the way the priests looked at the native people? Well, I would say it's different from our conception of race. It's, it's a conception uh, that's primarily cultural, that the, the native peoples were uh, defined as people without reason. And uh, civilized people, like the Spanish, were defined as people of reason. Now, the, the notion was not that Native peoples were incapable of reason, but the notion was that they had not learned reason and it would take a prolonged period of apprenticeship for them to master reason. Now, the missionaries often 
would, would have these naive, or I would say always had these naive notions when they start out a mission, which is that the native peoples are without reason, uh, which means that they're also less um, guilty of sin. They're certainly sinning, but they're less guilty of the sins they make because they don't know what they're doing. And the belief was that um, it makes them malleable, that, that they can be shaped into ideal Christians because they are less hardened to vice than most Spanish people were. So the, the missionaries are not people who are coming in with this categorical notion that all Spaniards are superior to all Indians. It's that they see the Indians as being naive, innocent, capable of being thoroughly reformed into the ideal Christians, provided the missionaries are in charge. And they're tr the missionaries are trying to keep Native peoples away from other Spaniards because they see other Spaniards as, as being hardened in vice. Now, because it's a naive notion, it, it means that these missionaries are easily frustrated. And then they can get angry. And they can feel betrayed because they thought Indian peoples were submitting and, and, and buying in the entire message of the mission. And then when they find out that the native peoples are coming and going or they're on the side, they're worshiping uh, traditional um, spirits, uh, or practicing things that the missionaries consider magic, then the missionaries can, can, can be quite angry and can be very violent. So it's, it's not quite the same thing as the kind of racial supremacy that uh, people of the United States would bring in their heads when they would come to California. Yeah, it's such an interesting contrast. I really enjoyed that in your book, American Colonies, and kind of contrasting how you know, kind of these more decentralized groups interacted with native people versus more centralized groups. And it, it, it was not a distinction that I had made or had learned in school um, or thought about in, in kind of looking at how political organizations affected the way uh, people interact with native people. And it was helpful. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the mission legacy. Um, uh, you know, in K-12 education in California, we learn about the missions in fourth grade, which sometimes uh, strikes me as a developmentally inappropriate time to learn about them. But, you know, it's neither here nor there. I, I, um, but I, I do think we, you know, it's something thinking about the legacy of the mission system. It's, it's you know, I mean, it's, it's everywhere from the names of our cities to our roads. Um, you know, these mission sites are uh, places that people visit as museums. Uh, but when you actually read about what happened there, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a, a little bit um, chilling to think about them as a you know kind of a, a place to go visit along the coast somewhere that's really pretty. Um, you know, some of these yeah. missions are quite beautiful, uh, but when we yeah. think about what happened there, it can be kind of a, a stark contrast. So, can you talk about uh, what you think the legacy of the mission should be if if you're thinking about in terms of uh, education? Um, so maybe in fourth grade, not developmentally the right time to talk about some of these things, but, um, you know, certainly in high school and college, thinking about missions in California. Yeah, well, this, historians will always say it's complicated. Right, right. right. And, and that, that's not always satisfying to people who say, I, I, I just want to know whether they're good or they're bad. Yeah. 
Uh, and we have a tendency to, in American culture, to want to divide people into the good guys and the bad guys. And I say, I, I, I think that's kind of tough to do with the missionaries. Um, there are plenty of things they did that were truly terrible. And then there are things that are truly admirable. They, I do believe they sincerely believed in their message and they sincerely believed that they were saving the souls uh, of people. I think that we should look at the story of the missions uh, as a sobering one about how good intentions, when they are informed by, or are in service to, I should say, um, notions of hierarchy, of some people being, for either cultural or racial reasons, being inferior and subject to population by people who are supposedly superior, that, that, that kind of belief system. If you have good intentions, and, and, but, but you, they are in service to those beliefs, the results will be tragic for the people that the missionaries thought they were helping. And it, it's then, I think, a challenge to us today not to feel like we're immensely superior and that we, if we just condemn the people of the past, we're, we, we've done our moral duty. Um, no, our moral duty is to say, you know, there but for the grace of divinity uh, go I, uh, if I'd been in an 18th century person. Um, and and what, what is going on in the world I live in today uh, where uh, intentions might be good, but the beliefs informing those intentions um, might need some questioning. Uh, so and I'm a little wary of our habit in our own time to look for uh, people in the past to be all bad um, because they truly did do some things that, that had terrible consequences. But as, as a way of kind of therapy for ourselves, to, to make ourselves feel better. Um, and I, I'm not so sure we should let ourselves off the hook with that practice. That's, that's kind of my view of it. It's let's instead look and try to and just understand um, the tragedy of what the missions were. A tragedy for the missionaries, but really a tragedy for the Native peoples involved. In. And to understand that this isn't an, an isolated thing for the 18th century around the world, uh, and that we, we have our own troubles here and now that, that need addressing. And, um, and, we, and we won't really get that far in addressing our own problems here and now if we adopt a, a position of saying that people in the past were, um, were evil and we're not. Um, it's, I think I mean, there was a great historian, C. Van Woodward, who said Americans, the problem is they don't have a sense of tragedy. You don't understand what tragedy is. Now, he, he thought that Southerners were the exception to that, that they understood tragedy because they'd been through the Civil War. 
Um, well, I, you know, I don't want to take on you know, that notion that Southerners alone have a sense of tragedy, but I think he's right in the broader point that um, we, we could do in education a much richer sense of the tragedy or the tragedies within American life, past and present, uh, rather than to treat our history as uh, a morality tale where good has been triumphing over bad all along. Yeah. So that's probably longer than you, you asked for. No, no. I, I, I mean, I think the question is was a little bit loaded in that, you know, talking about a legacy, those tend to be reduced to good or bad or kind of a mythologizing of history, whereas history is always more complicated and legacies tend to reduce. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, in some ways the idea of a legacy matters because we do uh, glorify people from history. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I teach eighth grade and I uh, take my students to Washington, D.C. each year, obviously not this year. Um, but mm -hmm. when we go in those, I forget what it's called in the Capitol, but the Hall of Statues or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, you know, Hall. Yeah. Junipero Serra is standing there in the hallway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about, about statues. And I've, I've kind of waffled a little bit, I think, you yeah. know, because it's just so complicated. Um, but I had, a, I had a Shumesh storyteller uh, named Alan Salazar come on the podcast a few episodes mm -hmm. ago. And we talked uh, for a long time. Uh, he's a, you know, Ventura native uh, about uh, the Junipero Serra statue that sits right in front of City Hall in Ventura. Um, and we talked about, you know, for him, it wasn't even tearing the statue down. It was just moving it to a proper historical place, which yeah. was the mission system. So yeah. how, how do you view uh, uh, statues and kind of the role they play? And do you think we need to kind of rethink how we, uh, w how we glorify some of those uh, artifacts? Well, I think it's a tricky business to, to look to the past for heroes um, um, because they're not us. Uh, so, you know, the, um, the suggestion was made by a um, prominent American political leader, I will not use his name, uh, saying we should have a garden of American heroes that would be filled with statues, the people that he approved of as, as his heroes. Um, you know, we, we, we do too much of that, I think. And, and that's, that was the function of statuary halls. Every state gets to nominate two people that lived in its state, many cases before it was a state, as in the case of Father Sarah. Uh, and that it's up to the state whether that statue will be there or not, or, or which two statues or which two people. So, so sometimes states change their mind and, and they pull statues out. Um, statues are markers. They, they are put in public places, and they are statements of who do we identify with, who, who do we think in the past is worthy of being in this prime position where people will pacify. Now, I think that most people walk by these statues and, and don't ever stop to read the inscriptions. And in and point of fact, I think that if you stood next to the statue of Father Sarah and, and asked most people passing by who it was, they wouldn't know. Um, but it, the, these things can be troubling if you're Chumash 
to see that the community you live in has chosen as the one prime statue to put in front of its city hall is a person that you know in your traditions was uh, responsible for some terrible things that happened to people. So I, I suspect the Chumash know who that statue is in a much higher proportion than the, the non-Chumash people in Ventura County do. And for them, it's troubling. It's like, why would you choose to put this up? What, what, what does it say about how you think about us? Those, those are questions that they would, would quite reasonably ask. So I do think it's an opportunity for reflection. Is that the statue you want in front of the city hall? Uh, if, if you reflect on, on what it means to all of the people in, in the county. Or would you be better off moving that statue somewhere else? Not destroying the statue, but moving it to somewhere else and putting it in a somewhat different context. Because in front of City Hall, it's meant to say, this is for the entire community. This is the historic symbol we want to rally around. And I'm just saying, if, if the people of Ventura County have it posed, to themselves that way. Maybe most of them think, yes, that is what I still want to rally around. But I suspect that a lot of people in Ventura County would agree with the Chumash elder that there's a different place for the state to go. Yeah. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, you know, I, it's, it's challenging. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a young guy in my generation. We, we are, we, we live on Twitter and we're quick to, you know, uh, what, I forget what the word is, uh, D uh, shoot, can't remember what the word is, but like to deplatform someone or or remove someone, and once something someone's done something, uh, their their entire you know their history or their life doesn't matter anymore. It's about the one thing you know, and I I, I don't want to excuse people uh, either. That's not what I'm saying, but uh, this kind of like black or white world just doesn't exist. It's something we've created and uh, apply kind of casually to people. Um, and I, you know, I think that's true also for how we look at native people. I mean, I, um, in this, you know, in this podcast, we've explored a lot of native groups in California. Um, and there's such, there's such a diversity and difference between, you know, someone like the Talawa, you know, up in the North, uh, the Northwest part of California, then the people of the desert, you know, in the uh, kind of close to Baja. Um, and I, the more you learn you, and the more you get into this stuff, you, start to see native people as active participants. I think at least when I learned history, I feel like native people are kind of portrayed as passive, yeah. as not, you know, I don't want to say entirely as victims, but you know, it's, there's this kind of like discourse yeah. in history that's like- Yeah, history you know, is something that happened to them rather than something that they helped to make. So why, why do you think it's important to really lean into this idea of them being active participants? Um, it, Anyway, because that makes them fully human. Now, it, it, we still, I think, uh, among educators, um, have a tendency to, you know, in the past, they were just, it was almost like they were figures in a natural history museum. And we would talk about them as if, you know, they, they were like polar bears or whatever. That, weren't active in making their own history and, and probably still weren't even around anymore. And we're, we're trying to get to a sense, I, th I hope, 
that we are treating everybody in the past as human beings engaged in the, in the enormous difficulties of being human being in uh, demanding circumstances. In the 18th century and 19th century presented plenty of demanding circumstances. Yeah, I, um, I, sorry to interrupt, but I, um, the book that caught me off guard and I'd been a kind of a, a subscriber to this discourse for a long time was, I, I can never say his name. He wrote a book about uh, Comanches and he has such a- Akahamalainen? There you go. I, that's the okay. first time I've heard it said out loud. So I, uh, that, okay. book, that book was such an eye opener for me in, in changing my perspective and thinking about the Comanche Wars and all the different things that happened uh, in the kind of the Midwest. And I don't, I don't remember really learning about those as much as I thought I should have in the history of right. the United States. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about it, when, when you treat, when you understand people in the past, all people, or you try to understand them as human beings in difficult circumstances, you, it means you can't really romanticize them either. Um, you know, native peoples did terrible things to one another at times. Now, now noting that doesn't let missionaries or Presidio soldiers off the hook because you know, they, they had more power to do, inflict greater miseries. Um, it's just to say that you know, hum, human beings are complicated, and and we we don't necessarily do native peoples of the past any favors if we turn them into icons of noble savagery. Uh, where where we do them justice is to say you know they they were human beings, fully formed human beings with a whole range of of human motivations, and um, they had quite successfully adapted on to uh, environments that they lived in in very ingenious ways. Uh, and then suddenly uh, they were invaded and, and forced to adapt to traumatic changes and did their best to uh, adapt to those things in very resourceful ways. Um, and so if we, if we, if we, I think if we perceive them in that way, that, that we are doing better by them than if we turn them into these stereotypical figures, either as the, um, noble savages, or if we treat them as savage savages, which I hope we're long beyond doing at this point. I hope so as well. I, um, I want to switch gears and talk about something that's kind of personal to me, and I'm very curious about your perspective. Um, you know, I, I'm someone that uh, when I first got into education, I, uh, you know, pretty, pretty quickly bought into kind of some of the progressive education ideas, you know, uh, higher order thinking, analytical skills. Um, but when you actually, I got into the, the gritty world of teaching K-12 education in California, particularly in the Central Valley, you know, I found myself struggling um, as I saw some educators around me trying to teach eighth grade students who are not on reading level. Uh, how to analyze a primary source um, when they didn't have the background knowledge uh, to really understand it to begin with. Um, but I, I do feel like there's a whole generation of adults, and I'm sure you know them, or know some of them, that look at history as kind of like facts and dates and use that as a kind of way to simplify what we're doing in the history classroom. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my question is, um, do you think... <sighs> How do you think we should approach this in terms of uh, the value of learning knowledge? Um, I, you know, some of the books that have been kind of 
you know, formative for me in my thinking are E.D. Hirsch's work um, about core knowledge. Um, and so what do you think the role of learning knowledge, you know, maybe it has some rote element to it. What, what role do you think that should play in how we teach history in the K-12 level? Well, I would argue for balance. Um, I, you know, I, I hope we don't have to make an either one or the other choice. I realize sometimes you have to prioritize one or the other. Um, I, I do want students to be able to analyze documents. But facts and dates are like the raw material you work with. Um, so a, a, a kind of basic parameter of when is it that the missionaries come? Uh, what, what is the peak period for the missions? Uh, when and how do they decline? Um, so to know the sequence of the most important things. Now, you, you can overdo facts and dates. Uh, and, you know, I've read the California standards for history and social studies. And to my view, they're very detailed and they're very difficult to master all of them. And I'm, I'm not thinking... And, and I understand how it happened. You get committees and everybody brings to it something they think is important and they want reflected. And it's hard to make choices, so you just keep it all in. But I think it's unrealistic to expect students to master all of it. Um, so, I, I, and, and so, but you need to know some of it. And you... I wish I could persuade students that the past is all is not just this one kind of mishmash because I get college students and I ask them to write papers and their papers will jump back and forth in time because something that happened in the 1850s and then something that happened in the 1790s, it all seems like it's part of past world. And uh, in, instead of seeing how something that happened in the 1790s can then lead into something that happened in the 1840s. Um, so a, a sense of that sequence matters, uh, that, that earlier events and ideas inform later events and ideas. And that it's not all just one mishmash of everything that happened before my lifetime now, I think would be a, a big gain for lots of students, including college students. Um, so I would say that the ideal would be that balance where you do need to know some, some basic dates uh, and some basic facts that the missionaries are from the Franciscan order in California, that um, Mexico, once it achieves its independence, ultimately will abolish the missions and that most of the lands will pass into private hands of ranchos and that the surviving Indian members of these communities would be then end up being laborers for the ranchos. Uh, these, those are important facts for people to know. Um, and that if you know these facts, then you will be able to analyze the documents in a more uh, accurate way. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like, and I, I find this sometimes where um, you don't tell the big story early enough 
or you just get lost in these vignettes of, of individual things or standards or something. And it feels like the facts and dates are easier to memorize kind of like in the, I don't know if this, uh, you'd heard about this, but, um, this, this kind of these memory competitions where they talked about the memory palace and how people, uh, competitive memorizers will use kind of like a, a visual place in their minds mm-hmm. to memorize. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it feels like we, history teachers, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, have to kind of give them this broad picture that they mm-hmm. can then attach these facts and dates to. Well, I agree, you know, that, and, and so the notion that the facts speak for themselves, or the notion that we're all we historians, history educators, that we we just take facts and dates off a shelf and then we put them back on the shelf after we're done teaching. <laughs> it's facts and dates are important, but they don't mean anything unless you are plugging them into a system of meaning of interpretation. So um, unless you have a notion of how the mission system worked what its consequences were for Native peoples, and how the mission system ended, then knowing when Father Sarah first came to San Diego doesn't mean anything. Yeah, has to be placed in that. You need to know when Father Sarah and and, uh, started to found this system, um, and to know how long the system lasted before Mexico secularized the missions. Those are important facts to know in order to make the system of meaning meaningful. So the, the two interplay with one another in any um, way to make sense out of history. Yeah, I want to transition to talking about uh, adults. Um, and, you know, I, I'm actually rereading an old classic right now, uh, Richard Hofstetter's, you know, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. Um, mm-hmm. It just was staring at me from my bookshelf recently for some reason. Who knows? I wonder, I wonder why. <laughs> and, <laughs> Alive uh, and well and, and uh, with 49% of Americans. Yes. And um, so speaking as an academic historian, how do you, uh, why is it important for you to be writing public histories uh, like, you know, many of the books that you've written, um, how do you think about their role? Um, and how do you see the kind of state of historical literacy among adults in America today, in the United States today? Well, I'm, I'm highly critical of a lot of my fellow academics because I, I believe they've just kind of defaulted on reaching out to the public. Um, and then it makes it quite easy for the public to assume that academics at universities don't really have anything to say to them. Yeah, unless they're in the sciences or in economics. I think we have an obligation as historians to be engaged with the public, which means listening to them as well as speaking to them, that it'd be a real dialogue. So I, I do a lot of uh, speaking in communities, speaking in, in churches or, or uh, community centers or local historical societies or schools, or doing things now in Zoom because that's the world we're in. Yep. Um, and, and I think I have an obligation to do that. 
Uh, I work at a public university. Um, taxpayers help to support what I do. Uh, and I, I think it's, it should be an essential part of the job for any historian to be able to explain what we're trying to do and to try to understand the, the notions of history that are out there in the public. Uh, and to engage in, in a dialogue with the public. Um, so I, I, I just, I, I, I don't think it's something that's optional. I think it should be you know, something that we should feel an imperative to do. I mean, it's universities are being defunded by the public. Um, and some of what goes on in the academy uh, strikes much of the public as, as irrelevant, if not hostile, to things they care about. Um, now, I don't fully share that critique. I partially share it. Um, but I think that there would be a lot better understanding on both sides if historians and, and other academics felt that communicating beyond the academy was a critical part of their jobs. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I'm sure it's hard. And I don't know if this is, I'm not one that works in the academy, but I know that there's incentives to publish in certain ways. Um, do you think universities need to have incentives to publish uh, more general audience material as well? Should that be part of uh, how tenure works or something like that? I think so. I mean, the so-called reward structure should, yes, be in line that it would, would validate that. Um, but even if what you do as a scholar is, is highly specialized and you're going to write in a, in a way that's going to be very limited in its publication, um, I understand that, that for most scholars, that's what you will do. But I would hope that you would still want to go out and speak in public or, or, and, 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 or listen uh, beyond your, the academy to you know, find out what kind of notions of history are out there and to do what you can to contribute to a public discussion of history. Um, so, so even if the reward structure is and your own, your own instincts are to stay within the academy for what you publish, um, venture out beyond the academy uh, to do other things. Yes. Um, I, I want to finish today by, um, I always say this um, on podcasts, that uh, podcasts are kind of like a granola bar, whereas a book is like a, a nice salad with lots of accoutrement, you know, lots of vegetables on top. And I want people to be reading as much as, you know, a lot of us just listen to lots and lots of podcasts these days. But I feel like books are where you uh, really grow um, and podcasts should point us there. So um, in terms of books about native groups or um, California history, are there certain uh, historians at work that you look to if you want to investigate some of the topics that we've been covering uh, today, uh, certain, certain writers that you look to? Uh, well, some of these will, will, will seem kind of old-fashioned because I, I, it's been a while since I wrote about California uh, Indian history. So, uh, you know, I do think that Albert Hurtado's book is a, is a classic that, that stands up well. 
I think uh, if one doesn't have a sense of how um, brutally um, Native peoples were treated in the 19th century by the American invasion, then reading Benjamin Madley's book, it's a more recent book, um, is, um, I think, essential reading. It's, it's very painful reading. Um, I, and I, I think sometimes the book gets locked into trying to, to argue a definition of genocide, um, a legal definition of genocide that I think ends up being distracting from the book's great merits. Um, I will say to interrupt you, sorry. Oh, I'm I, sorry. I was just going to say to interrupt you real quick. The one, the one conference that I went to as a graduate student uh, to present a paper was a genocide conference. And I remember sitting in a room for four hours as scholars from around the world argued about the semantics of the word and, you know, uh, uh, for good reason. But uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, I understand, you know, Native peoples in California today really want people to understand that the consequences of American intrusion into their world were genocidal. So without question. Um, but when you, when you want to get into the legalistic definition of, of genocide, um, I, I do think you get into these very abstract discussions that detract from just thinking about the consequences and the process and how did the process work. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I think Benjamin Madley's book is, is, is an important book, but it's not, it's not an easy book to read uh, because of the painful topic and because there, there is, because he just wants to document um, the, the number of terrible things um, it, it's, it can get repetitive, but it's an important book. No. Well, um, I, I appreciate you coming on. I've, I've loved your books. I've loved American colonies, American revolutions and internal enemy are on my kind of, uh, periodic reading list to refresh myself before I teach early American history. So I appreciate you and thank you for writing those books. They really have helped me teach American history in a kind of more comprehensive way. So what, uh, are you working on a book now or do you have projects in the works that you can tell us about? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a sequel to American Revolutions now. So I started out with American Colonies uh, and then American Revolutions. And then the third book in that series is going to be called American Republics. So it tells the, the story of North America. So it includes Canada and Mexico and also um, Haiti and Cuba uh, from approximately the end of the American Revolution until 1850. So it, it culminates in the Mexican War and then the consequences of the Mexican War, uh, including for California, of becoming wow. the United States. Well, maybe we should have you back on after you finish that book, because that's, that's just what we finished covering. And it's, it's such a complicated, interesting history. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I appreciate you coming. Where can people find your books? I, I don't want to just say Amazon these days. Um, where, where's a good place well, to find your work? You know, go to your independent bookstore and, and uh, ask. You know, if, they, if they don't carry my book, they should, or my books. <laughs> um, bookstores like to hear what, what readers are interested in um, because it helps them make decisions about what they put on their shelves and they have limited shelf space. So you, you can go to any uh, local bookstore and ex express interest. You, you can, for example, you can go to Amazon and, and find out pretty easily all the books that I've written. And then you can go to your local bookstore to show support for that bookstore by saying, do you have this book? And if they don't, they'll order it for you. Great. Well, 
uh, stay safe and uh, hopefully we'll all stop watching CNN at some point and uh, move on with our <laughs> lives. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Uh, well, thank you for doing this. I think you're doing a, a real service for, for students and the public with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider supporting this show either through Patreon by making a financial contribution or by giving us a rating and review. Until next time. Thank you.